Hey everyone, I hope you're doing well and killing it at life right now. Obviously, if you're listening to this, it means that you are amazing and you've got great taste. I just wanted to warn you with this episode, me and Afalabi, we broke our rule of trying to keep our episodes short, but how could we not? This episode is a review of the Netflix documentary, The Last Dance, and it's such a good documentary. We recommend that everybody listening go and watch that. But I wanted to warn you in advance that this is a long one. So we've actually decided to split the episode in half. So today you'll be listening to the first half of the episode. And then next week we will publish the second half of the episode. Don't say we don't do anything for you. We keep it nice and short here. Um, Also, just so you know, there were a few audio challenges throughout the episode. Hopefully it's not too jarring. I've done my best to try and reduce the impact of those. But yeah, if it sounds like Afalabi is underwater at any period, uh, it's, it's because of the audio challenges. But either way, I really hope you enjoy this. Let us know what you think. And without any more delay, here is part one of our review of The Last Dance. How you doing, bro? Tired. But I'm good. How are you? Talk to me. Why are you tired? It's, uh, it's been a very challenging week. Um, so my wife's gone into a, a new venture, which has resulted in her purchasing a large quantity of items from abroad. So we received a shipment this week, which is going to take an age to just unpack and assemble. Um, I want you to imagine one of those those massive storage containers that you see on ships. The shipping container. The shipping container. So it's three of those. So it's going to take a while. This is the dilemma of the modern entrepreneurial couple, I guess. Your free time is never really free time. It's not. Especially when my wife is very goal-orientated. You know what she wants, um, but sometimes the process in terms of getting there is not her problem, and I think that's where I come <laughs> in. Oh gosh, um, I find myself constantly battling with that same dilemma. Uh, I love my missus, I love you if you're listening, but there is always that discussion between what you want. <laughs> and how you're going to get it so we're constantly having a discussion about okay I understand what you want now talk to me about how and I think when I kind of ask it in that uh, format that's when things start to make a lot of sense or they fall apart so oh, I want to get I want to get this done okay well how are we going to do that oh I, well actually that that sounds really expensive yes so yeah maybe we shouldn't do that um so yeah, it's it's a vital challenge, and I was reading a, a book on marriage. Well, I'm, I'm actually in the process um, of reading the book. I think it's called Highway Code to Marriage, okay. and really interesting. And it, it identifies that you have two different types of people, um, and th- there's a common adage. I think it's called seeing the wood through the trees. Yes. Um, some people are very good at seeing the what's on the surface 
and seeing that in detail. So paint, painting a vivid picture in their mind of, of what they want. And then others are really good at delving into the actual background. So seeing the wood through the trees. Okay, well, I, you know, I see a beautiful picture of a forest. But who's actually the one seeing the detail, the wood in the background? And yeah. both of those people are important. They're both vital. Um, but I think those two types of people can often clash because they see the world from completely different perspectives. Yes. And it's, it's how you deal with that challenge. Because often you are communicating in a very different language. And that can lead to both parties being very frustrated. Um, whilst it seems like we're speaking a great deal about marriage, this can also translate into business partnerships and relationships. So it's almost important to understand how that person views the world and communicates their ideas. Uh, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey. I think his book is probably the best book I've read about understanding other people's perspectives. Maybe also How to Win Friends and Influence People. That's another really good book. But that foundation has definitely helped me be a better communicator and has got me out of a lot of trouble when dealing with people who just think extremely difficult, differently to me. So that's expensive lesson number one in an episode which is going to be completely unrelated to anything about marriage and uh, romantic relationships. But, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Expensive Lessons. And I'm excited. I'm excited. I've been looking forward to this episode for quite a while now. And I'm very keen to get stuck in to this discussion. Now, if you've listened to this podcast and listened to a few episodes, you may have heard Afalabi and I reference a Netflix television program. And this program had so many life lessons embedded in it that we just had to do an episode of it. So if, if you're not sure what we're talking about, we're talking about The Last Dance, which is a documentary about the Chicago Bulls, but primarily Michael Jordan, uh, one of the best sportsmen ever uh, and the the talisman of the Chicago Bulls during, I believe it's the 97-98 season where they were playing for their sixth second NBA three championship three. and their second 3P, so their second, uh, third championship in a row. So... What it does is it talks primarily around that final season, but also goes back into the past and talks about how Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls came to be one of the most prolific winning teams ever. And also some of the ups and downs that many of the, the, the key players experience along the way. Super interesting. Even if you're not a sports person, I recommend watching it just to understand some of the dynamics um, involved in just being a, a, a successful organization, full stop. Yes. There'll be many people who will be confused as to why we're referencing this, because it's not explicitly a business, even though all sports teams are businesses. 
but success leaves clues. And what that documentary highlighted is that their success was by no means random. And we're talking about a, a club who historically were average. And interestingly, after Michael Jordan, have been extremely average. So I'm, I'm really fascinated just to unpick some of the key lessons and to see how could we apply this to our lives, maybe even our businesses. So where do we start with this? How do we delve into this? I mean, I've got a couple of thoughts, but I'm keen to hear what you think in terms of how do we set the scene? How do we actually uh, I really want cut this into this? Free flow. I think there are several key figures and what we could potentially do for the listeners to help them, especially if they haven't watched the documentary yet. And I say yet because I urge you to watch it. It's fantastic viewing. Is to do a deep dive into each character. Because of each character, there is most definitely a few lessons that we can take. There are wins within their own character and their, their journey. But there are also things that they did which we can learn from their experience but potentially not doing. And we could potentially leave Michael Jordan to last and start thinking about all those around him. So which, which figure comes to mind first? Okay, uh, yeah, and just to your point, if you haven't watched the series yet, go back and watch it and then come back to this episode. I highly recommend you watch it in full and then come back to this episode. It's so good. I don't want to spoil some spoil it for you. Um, so get get involved. Um, watch the whole thing. You'll probably do it in two or three days because that's how good it is. Yes. Um, who do I want to start with? So there are a couple of players that I think, when I say players, I mean uh, contributors, participants who are absolutely vital to the success of the Chicago Bulls. And we may actually want to start with their, their coach, Phil Jackson. Who is, has probably gone down as the greatest NBA coach of all time. Based on accolades, absolutely, it must be. Now, when I think about Phil Jackson, I think about someone who wasn't the first pick when he was recruited. Now, that's the first lesson that I'll take away from Phil Jackson, because there are some of us out there who know that we are not the first pick, or we were not the first pick, either in our careers or maybe in our businesses. We know that we're entering into the arena, and we are not the customer's first choice. But we have to differentiate ourselves somehow. We have to be able to grapple um, new knowledge or new um, initiatives to make ourselves distinct and then to imprint our plan upon our industry. And I think that's one of the things I really took away from Phil Jackson's first couple years when he was trying the triangle, something which, now the triangle for people who are listening, was a specific um, tactic within the NBA game of how to move the ball to ensure that you have as many players available to take a shot. It was a strategy which was focused on team play and not an individual, which sounds a bit ironic because everyone knows Chicago Bulls for Michael Jordan. But we'll get to that conversation and that dispute. But one of the fantastic lessons for me was the fact that he went in with a philosophy. He stood by that philosophy. He had trialed that philosophy previously. Um, I believe he, he, he worked in South America prior. But that dogged determination to 
hold on to what he believed in, even when it didn't initially succeed, is invaluable. Yeah, and one one thing I'll say about him is he had gritty beginnings. So in terms of his coaching career, as you said, he was playing in in South America with all sorts. He was playing um, basketball when you had cartel members. You had um, it, yeah, it was it was very challenging for him. And you know that that's where he cut his teeth. He didn't cut his teeth in a clinical, high tech high-funded environment. He had to make the most of the scraps, if you will, to, 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 to get su- success. He was also a player himself. And as a player, he won. So yes. he, wasn't, he, he wasn't shy about being a winner. And that is juxtaposed by the fact that he was a hippie. So one thing about him, as you mentioned, he wasn't picked first to be the head coach for the Chicago Bulls. In actual fact, he interviewed, and because of the way he turned out, he didn't own a suit, he looked very rough and, um, uh, I guess, unkempt. And the owner just turned him away, didn't even give give him uh, any second thought. And Jerry Krause, who I'm sure we'll get onto later, gave him some advice and said, you need to come dressed in a suit. And it was only... uh, a few years down the line after that initial interview where he came and he dressed uh, smarter that he actually was considered for for the role as a coach, not the head coach, but as a coach for the Chicago Bulls. And as I said, it's juxtaposed because he was a hippie. He grew up in the 70s. So you had that free love energy. You had the very chilled, laid back energy. He took a lot of drugs. Um, and that juxtaposed with the fact that he was a passionate winner, um, I, I found very interesting. But those two elements of his character, I think, work together perfectly to, to provide exactly what the Chicago Bulls needed. And we'll, we'll talk about Jordan. But Jordan was a hard man and he was a tough guy, quote unquote. And the the, the difference between him and... Phil Jackson, I think, helped complement the, the the boardroom or the 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 dynamics, uh, the, the dynamics in 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 the uh, locker room, where you had somebody who in Jordan was very tough and somebody who in Phil Jackson was a winner, but very much a people person. Pas- absolutely, people person. He was pastoral. He was more caring, um, and and that worked really well. So I'd I'd say he was he was he was really effective at getting the most out of people because he understood people on a intimate level and he also knew how to manage communicate support his superstars such as Jordan and Rodman. Now there, there are two things you've mentioned there which are crucial I think if we're trying to extrapolate expensive lessons. One, he always had genius in him in terms of his methodology. However, he could easily have been out of the job by keeping it real. And we've had in the past that keeping it real at times can keep you broke. So <laughs> lesson number one, well done in his part for taking the advice of tweaking, pivoting slightly in terms of his uh, demeanor to secure the job. 
to secure the bag, as the kids would say. He came back in a suit. If he didn't and was true to his being, true to himself, as some people would say nowadays, we wouldn't be speaking about him. Second, he understood that all teams are based around individuals and he tailored his approach to each and every individual. I'm more fascinated about how he treated Rodman as opposed to Jordan. With Jordan and his genius, you almost have to just allow him to do whatever he wants. But not everyone else has that same luxury. But he showed he was able to understand people's needs and how to choose not to be the disciplinarian on all occasions to get what's best out of them. We'll talk about Rodman because, yeah, I think there's a uh, an element of empathy that Phil Jackson displayed when dealing with Rodman. And you, we'll see that. I think maybe we'll talk about that when we get onto onto Rodman. I think the last thing I'll say about Phil Jackson is that he was very happy to assimilate new information. So you mentioned the triangle offense that he uh, was a proponent of. Now, he didn't make that up. He actually... Um, took it on from a guy named Tex Winter, who was the the biggest proponent of the triangle offense at the time. And one of the reasons why the triangle offense was so controversial was that the NBA at the time, the way they generally played was every major team had a star player. And the aim of the game was get your ball to the star player and get that person to score. So somebody who was a role player, someone on the side, may not actually get that many touches of the ball. Uh, And this triangle offense approach meant that pretty much every player on the team was getting the ball. The The ball was constantly in motion, which meant that every single player needed to be trusted to handle the ball and pass the ball, which in our current age doesn't seem very controversial. But back then especially when you had a team with a Michael Jordan on it, just seemed absolutely ridiculous. And it's interesting, the the coach before Phil Jackson, his name was Doug, uh, I can't remember the surname, but his philosophy was get the ball to Mike and get out of the way. So this was completely different. So the lesson there is about assimilating information, which doesn't come from you. Is a level of innovation required for that, a level of empathy, but also being persuasive enough to get somebody who is a superstar, a Michael Jordan, to actually adopt that new information, adopt it. And what it means is you're actually going to get less touches of of the ball, Michael, but you're going to win championships. Also around building teams, if you think outside of sports and look at the, the corporate world, or the business world. Often we can find that example being replayed where there is a chief salesman or a chief contract negotiator, someone who everyone knows they need to get the metaphorical ball to, to secure the deal. However, if you take a step back, we know that actually that person who is your most highly effective individual it's probably also the one who might leave the quickest because they're highly sought mm. after. And thus, it's in your best interest as a manager, a coach, a director, to ensure that each individual can step up, that everyone is being grown to the best of their ability. 
Agreed. Let's talk about Kraus. Wow. I want to talk about Kraus. We mentioned Jerry Kraus a bit already in providing advice to Phil Jackson about how best to present himself in a in an interview. What were your general thoughts about Jerry Kraus? Jerry Kraus will lead to a great deal of controversy and differing opinions. There'll be a great deal of people who will just despise him because he easily comes away as a villain within the narrative in the documentary. However, I do see his genius. And I think every successful organization needs a Kraus prior to Phil Jackson, maybe even prior to a Michael Jordan. Now, if we start with his positives, what he was able to do from an executive level was to see the moving pieces. He was able to see what was necessary to actually get the team to the next stage. He was able to identify the coach, identify the players, and he almost knew the expiry dates of the players as well. So he was always ready for the next generation, which is brilliant. There's a lot to unpack there. In terms of the negatives, I think he got high on his own supply. I think he realised how good he was at being the chief chef, as being the pilot, that he believed he could recreate teams at a whim, forgetting the people, the strength of Phil Jackson, forgetting that actually there are certain individuals which you cannot merely dispose of them because of data. You cannot merely replace them because of relationships. And that is what's potentially costing his legacy. His early success meant that his later failure probably be forgotten. Sometimes I really dislike you when you literally just take the wind out of my sail. You pretty much just said every. Honestly, what more is there to say? No, you're you're absolutely right. I think every documentary needs a villain, and one thing that I would like to remind people of is that this documentary is for entertainment purposes. So in order for things to progress, you need that adversarial character. And in this instance, it was Jerry Krause. Does that mean he was uh, hard done by or poorly representative, poorly represented during this? No, I don't think so. I think he was represented fairly as a human being with all of his different mm, character traits. But what it also reminds me of is that maybe some of the other characters in the documentary were treated unfairly. We never got to see the negative side of Phil Jackson. And he was angry at times. We didn't necessarily... Well, we saw that the Michael Jordan negative traits, but it was almost lionized and demonstrated as even though he was, you know, he had character flaws, you know, this was just part of his charm. Krause's flaws were on full display and there was no backup for it. You know, it was told, the, the story was told from the perspective of the people who served or worked with him who didn't very didn't like him very much and he didn't get a, a chance to rebut so I, I'll, I'll premise that with what i'm saying and that i don't necessarily know the full story but absolutely he was a genius he was a genius and he was 
a data scientist. Yeah. In terms of selecting players and selecting coaches, he looked at the data. He was one of the first general managers to look at things like top speed, arm span, number of rebounds, and have some sort of moneyball chart to help him identify who would be the best fit for the team. And in terms of bringing the team together, that was his responsibility. A lot different to Premier League football, where the manager, head coach, is responsible for strategy, tactics, but also responsible for picking players. We've seen some back and forth in the past. I'd say Roman Abramovich and Jose Mourinho yeah. definitely had challenges where Abramovich wanted certain players and Jose Mourinho didn't feel like he was getting as much autonomy as he needed. But very different in NBA where the general manager will pick the team and the head coach has to do their best with the team that's been picked. Um, and yeah, it was definitely interesting to see who he picked and he took chances. Dennis Rodman, for instance, who he selected and who we'll talk about, was definitely not somebody who most GMs wanted in their squad for many reasons. And he also got rid of various high-profile players. Very good players. For, for, for role players, for people to support Jordan and support around Jordan. So he was, a, he was there to make some difficult decisions. And to your point, I think he wanted to go down in history as one of the best strategists in the NBA. So he was making moves when moves weren't necessary in my view and he was and he was communicating poorly with the team and it reminded me actually a bit of a Rafa Benitez for Liverpool back in the day because Rafa Benitez he had a team in Liverpool which was only really getting fourth position fifth position on the Premier League table but they won the Champions League and after winning the Champions League, he was making moves which made no sense to many <laughs> Liverpool players. He was keen to do a rotation plan, which meant that even if a player was fit and ready to play and was one of the better players on the team, they would sit on the bench in place of somebody who was less capable because he was keen to rotate. He wanted as many different players on the pitch as possible. And he was also trying to make some incredibly controversial signings. Do you remember Gareth Barry when he was Alonso trying to for Gareth Barry? Uh, sell, sell Alonso, Jabby Alonso for Gareth Barry. Now, I'm, I appreciate most of the people listening to this are going to be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But honestly, this was like swapping a, a Prada Ferrari. Bag. <laughs> I'll get, no, yeah, I, well, I was going to say swapping a Ferrari for a Ford Focus. But you're going to say a Prada bag for... For uh, a bag from accessories. <laughs> Literally, I just didn't understand it. Yes, you were going to make a lot of money from selling Alonso, but to swap him with Barry, Gareth Barry. Anyway, back to the NBA. These, this was the, the characteristic of a Krauss in that he wanted to be known as this you know chess player who could move the pieces in a way and not necessarily have the accolades beyond the players but have the accolades be on the on the general manager. I think he firmly believed that he could create another Michael Jordan. Yes. And he firmly believed that he was winning the championship. What was the statement? 
that the players don't win, that the general managers win. There's something along those lines. He said something along those lines. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean. It's the, the leadership or something like that that wins. Which is partially true. But this man just had no emotional intelligence. Genius. Amazing strategist. But it's about people, as you often say. <laughs> it's all about the people. And it's all about the people. He rubbed up too many people the wrong way. And I'm surprised they stayed as long as they did. And they probably did because of Phil Jackson. They, many of them openly stated they were going to stay for him. And were openly would leave when he left. So, so let's talk about that. I think we can definitely transition from Kraus into Scotty Pippen because they had a tumultuous relationship. And I'd say a lot of it was to do with Kraus's approach to management. And what are your general thoughts on... Sorry, go ahead. And his contract. Scotty Pippen. Um, <laughs> yeah. I remember recommending this documentary to my older brother <clears throat> and my sister. And I remember recommending it to them because... As a child, I remember them watching the NBA very late at night. I remember going to sleep. And I remember the following day, they'll be talking about the NBA. Now, as a child, I never watched it. But I know that they did. And I know that this was the 90s generation that they were watching. So they were watching the Chicago Bulls. And my brother asked me, okay, in this documentary they want me to watch, do they highlight Scott Pippen? Now, the reason he asked that question is that as an NBA fan, he knew how essential Pippen was to that team. Unfortunately, sometimes there's just someone who is more gifted, and that is Michael Jordan. Everyone in the documentary, in their own way, just explained that Jordan was just the most gifted. We were all good. Some of us were great. And then there was Jordan. Now, if you take Jordan aside, you've got Scottie Pippen, who was a great all-rounder. This was the person who was notable for points, but became a great wingman when Jordan was playing. But the biggest issue around him was his contract. And if we can go into his contract, just to explain, it became apparent that he signed a very high-profile contract. Um, This is millions and millions of dollars. But in time, through the growth of the NBA propelled largely because of Jordan and the Chicago Bulls brand worldwide. Scottie Pippen, who was arguably one of the top five NBA players, number two to Jordan and Chicago Bulls, was not in the top hundred highest paid NBA players. And he wasn't because he signed a very long-term deal. Now when you get into his psyche as to why he would sign such a long-term deal, you have to think about his upbringing. And this is where psychologists always go back to our upbringing, the, the, the formative years, our, our adolescence. He grew up in a very large household, a household with many children, and a household where, unfortunately, two of those members in a very small household um, had disabilities or wheelchair users. So it's the typical narrative of the African-American done good, but who's actually supporting an entire community. And for him, seeing millions and seeing a long-term contract was seeing security and stability. And he took it. Now, during those years, through the growth of the sport, through the money coming in, everyone was signing new contracts, and suddenly his good deal 
was a horrendous deal. And that irked him. And it must have frustrated him because he knew he was great. His greatness was truly emphasized when Jordan had his hiatus and he was the number one. So I get it. Krauss didn't get it. Neither did the owner. In their minds, you got a contract? You do? Get out of my office. Very cut and dry. And then later on, we see that there's a contention with him trying to get a move, but we'll get to that after I hear your point. Um, so I, I want to paint a picture for what, what the market looked like at the time. NBA now is a cultural phenomenon, as in it impacts the world. You know, football, uh, basketball culture is embedded in countries as far away as, as, as China, the Middle East, or, uh, Australia. And in the early 1980s, it just didn't have that much of an impact. American football was popular. Soccer, or real football, as I like to call it, was global. But basketball just didn't have that impact. It wasn't the case that people uh, in the UK, for instance, would be walking around wearing basketball jerseys. So as a result, the players just weren't making very much. I'll give put it into perspective. Um, Michael Jordan's rookie contract was significantly less than what a NFL player was getting. He were, he got, I believe it was about $6 million for his rookie year. I'm sorry, for his uh, rookie contract. So the first contract he got was about $6 million, and that was supposed to be a seven-year contract. And he was able to re renegotiate that to a, I think it was about $25 million contract for eight years. Um, later down the line, which I think was maybe about three or four years later. So that was a big jump. Now, while this was happening, Pippin was locked into a seven-year contract at 20 million, which when you compare it to what Jordan was getting, 25 million for eight years, it's actually not too bad. The problem, the problem is, is that when Jordan exploded, he was offered a significant jump in his contract. Whereas Pippin was not, as you mentioned, Scotty Pippin was, in some people's books, the number two player in the NBA. The Chicago Bulls had the, the best and the second best player in the NBA. One was very highly paid. The other wasn't even in the top 100. So for that reason, Scottie Pippen just yeah, was, was, was un undervalued significantly. One other interesting fact, though, is that at, during their, their entire playing careers, Scottie Pippen actually eventually made more money than Michael Jordan because after the Bulls disbanded, he signed a huge contract. Um, he did become a gentleman. Yes, when he left the Bulls, and I think part of that was part of it was was linked to his legacy. But he did sign a huge contract. I forgot who he went to, but he did uh, sign with a, a few teams and made a lot of money, and actually made more money from basketball than Michael Jordan did. But during this time, 
there was a lot of challenge and that that came from Kraus. Kraus refused to renegotiate Pippin's contract. And I'd say the thing that stood out to me as why there's an important expensive lesson here is because as a result of being unfairly treated in his perception, Pippin decided to take a surgery during the season or during one of the, the during the first championship season. And I believe it was an ankle surgery, but that meant he was actually out of action for most of that season. And we'll talk about the the, the Bulls response um, in, in a bit, but the expensive lesson there is if you're not effectively communicating with members of your team, if you're not serving the members of your team and supporting them, then they will not have your back. Pippin could have very easily had that surgery during the off-season, during the NBA break. But he intentionally waited until the season was up and running to have that surgery. He was getting his money, he was getting paid, he just wasn't playing. And in his eyes, well, you know, if I'm going to get a rubbish deal, I might as well <laughs> have some time for myself. I might as well not play. So I'm sure if he was treated more fairly, then he would have responded in a much more appropriate, more supportive manner. And that isn't to take away from Pippin, because I think Pippin is an absolute mogul. He understood the game like many people didn't, and he understood his role in the game. But as Michael Jordan would would indicate, he was weak-minded in many instances. And I don't think he was necessarily a weak player. I just think he didn't have the dogged determination to play and to win no matter what than a Michael Jordan did. So by not being treated right, he walked away. I think there's a an important opportunity there for us to all psychoanalyze ourselves and to be really critically self-reflective. Why do we do what we do? I think if someone was able to take him aside and help him to understand that, okay, you're about to sign this deal because of your family upbringing, but just pause and reflect upon your age and what is happening around you. Do you have to take such a long deal now? Can you be more patient? Can you back yourself and better yourself? One. Two. You didn't listen to me and you signed the deal. Do you want to go down that route of being remembered as the one who let the team down when really that's not the true character? Your true character is someone who is very family orientated and supports the team. He is the greatest wingman. (laughs) Everyone needs a pit. Yes. Everyone needs someone who's going to be willing to do the dirty work to assist, who gets joy in assisting because he understands that his role is to help the greater goal. That is his his default setting with his family and with the team. However, his emotions were involved and he was just livid at what he saw as dishonor and and, and abuse of himself. It's it's understandable, but, but partially painful to watch. And I think that leads us quite nicely on to how the Bulls responded to Pippin taking surgery. 
and being out for a large part of the season. And I think this is demonstrable of Jerry Krause's genius and his understanding of the game. So Pippin's role in the team was, as you mentioned, a wingman for Michael Jordan. He was very defensive player in that he would clean up baskets on the other end. So people would shoot, um, uh, his opponents would shoot, and his aim was to disrupt them. Uh, either uh, block the ball or, if they missed, making sure that the ball uh, landed in the hands of a team, team member as opposed with, to the opposition. They're called rebounds. And he was very effective at that. And one of the points that was mentioned about Pippin actually was the fact that he was the type of player who would rebound, collect the ball from, the, um, from his end and go the full length of the court and score on the other end, which was actually very difficult. Not many people could do it. But he changed his game to support Jordan, which was he was going to focus on being a defensive player and a supporting player. And he did that effectively. He did that extremely well. Now, with him out of the game, Jordan was missing a significant element of the, the Bulls winning formula. He didn't have that defensive player who was going to feed him the ball. He didn't have that defensive player who was going to clean up the offense. Someone who was massive. I think he was six foot eight, potentially. Mm. Um, and he had an incredible reach. Someone who was a domineering figure. So with, with him missing... The Bulls needed to find a replacement. And they found a replacement in one of the most unlikely matches that you can imagine. And interestingly enough, I'd say that this person probably now overshadows Pippin in recognition. I think more people are familiar with the name of Dennis Rodman than they are with Scottie Pippin as a player. Not necessarily because of what he did on the court, which was absolutely amazing, but what he also did off the court, which was be a, a bizarre, be a maverick, just be completely eccentric. Now, why was this such a controversial move? So you may be familiar with uh, Dennis Rodman and you may have seen him turn up to matches wearing wedding dresses. Uh, he had more piercings than I think I've had meals in my life. He had a large number of tattoos. He had his hair dyed in so many different colors. It was crazy. And you might think, okay, in 2020, uh, I've seen six of those walking past my street this morning. In the early 90s, for a black man to be as eccentric, to be as, what would the word be, um, different, as, as Rodman was, it was unheard of. Uh, he was different. He also was notable for dating a lot of very famous women. Carmen Electra, Madonna, for instance. So he was a very well-known player for his antics. He took a lot of drugs. He um, was in nightclubs a lot. He was a gambler, etc. But what he did on the court was spectacular, second to none. He was a bully, which almost is absolutely unlike the persona you would imagine for a guy who wears wedding dresses <laughs> to, to matches. He was a bully on the court. 
and he came from the Pistons. He was a player for the uh, Pistons, who was a big bane to the Chicago Bulls. Chicago Bulls used to go and play the Pistons, the Detroit Pistons, and get absolutely brutalized, beaten up, effectively. Um, Dennis Rodman once said that I actually look forward to getting my nose broken or drawing blood because now I'm motivated. Like that was the type of character that he was. And he was very, um, what, would, what would it be? He was, he was very much a pariah for the NBA because that's not how we play. This is a beautiful game, a beautiful sport, and you guys are just brutalizing it. You're making it look messy. So bringing him on, recruiting him to the Chicago Bulls was a huge risk. It was potentially going to take away from the family-friendly look that the Chicago Bulls had, but also bring in this maverick, odd character who might actually disrupt the team completely. And it was so interesting. When when they reached out to him to play after he'd left the, the Pistons, his response was, yeah, whatever, I'll play. He wasn't excited. He wasn't particularly uh, intrigued to be playing alongside one of the best basketball players ever. He was just like, oh, I need something to do. So, yeah, I'll do it. And that was his character. What do you think? When I think of Rodman, I agree completely. Um, I have to first think of Krauss and then Phil Jackson. Because he is a Hiroshima bomb. <laughs> now, he's a... He is a bomb. Now, a bomb is always destructive. However, you just want to ensure that the bomb goes off in the right place and that you are not a victim. You're not a casualty of that bomb going off. I think of Krauss because he was shrewd enough to realise this is what we need. As you mentioned, the Pistons bullied Chicago Bulls. The Bulls had to beef up. Uh, Jordan had to get a physical trainer to help him just put on muscle because their beautiful play was just being brutalised. And with Rodman, you had someone who enjoyed doing the dirty work. Whilst Pippin was a great wingman, a great at rebounds and assists, Rodman was great at just breaking up play. It wasn't even basketball. <laughs> I'm trying to think. He was of, just a bu- he was a bully. There are there are equivalent players um, in other sports whose sole function is just to destabilize, but they do it brilliantly, and you're happy to have them because they're doing it for you. Or when they're on the opposite side, you just can't get around them because they're doing it within the thin line of the law of the game. <laughs> he didn't do anything wild enough, often enough, to have him dismissed or disciplined to miss a game. But he did enough to ensure that defensively, the Bulls would concede fewer than the opponents. I think of Phil Jackson because when you have such a eclectic, eccentric character, you've got to manage their ego as much as their talent. And I think Phil Jackson did that well. There is that episode where Rodman had another another one of his just periods of falling out of love with basketball. 
and you just wanted time off. And they asked me, okay, so what, what do you need so we can get you back? He said, oh, do you know what, I've seen the holiday. Now, in many organizations, that would have been, no, this is mid-season, that we're trying to win the championship. There's no holiday. They asked, okay, how long? 48 hours. And that episode cracked me up because you had Jordan just saying, listen, if you allow that guy to leave, we are not going to see him again. <laughs> if he leaves this building, we are not going to see him. 48 hours becomes 72 hours, becomes four days. And Rodman's living life in Las Vegas. Images of him, public, this is, can only happen in the 90s. You can't imagine it happening now. No. It would be covered up somehow. He would be injured. That's what they would say now. <laughs> um, he was not injured. You saw him with Harley Davidson's in strip clubs. But Phil Jackson realised that's what that character needed. Did he abuse the rope that they gave him? Most definitely. But he came back focused. So there are lessons. There are lessons in one recruitment. There is dirty work to be done in every team. There needs to be someone who's willing to not actually count the cost because most people are counting the cost. There's only so far people can go. Jordan doesn't want to get yeah. injured. Rodman will not count the cost. Second, great management. You're going to say? I, I was going to say, yeah, I, I, I think the, the bookend of that story is Rodman in training when they finally got him back. So Jordan actually had to go to Las Vegas <laughs> to his hotel and drag him back. And it was hilarious because when you see Jordan on the screen, he's like, I can't even tell you what I saw <laughs> in that picture. <laughs> I'm not to... And Carmen, Ele Carmen Electra said that she was hiding in a club at, at the time. But they had to literally drag Rodman back from his, his week of debauchery. But when they got back to training... Phil Jackson was like, okay, well, we've had Rodman out. We need to get him back. Okay, we're going to take it gently. Well, he had a, an Indian drill, which I've, I've done in the past, which is everybody runs in a line and the person at yes. the back of the line has to run to the front of the line and you carry that on. So the person then at the back has to run to the front. So the person right at the front is the one managing the pace. So if you're running fast, it's going to be a lot harder for the person at the back of the line to get run all the way to the front. So Michael Jordan said, listen, let's take it easy. <laughs> we want to we, we have it calm because this guy's just got back from training. We also don't want to be punished for this guy's antics. So let's not run as fast as we can. Rodman gets on, assuming everyone's assuming that this guy is going to be absolutely knackered. He sprints the whole way around. And I think the reason why that's beautiful is, as you mentioned, Phil Jackson understood what this person needed and gave him that. And as soon as he had his period of um, reflection, period of, of release, he was back to who he was. And the two lessons around that that I think are important for me, one is burnout. You need to under, be able to identify burnout in yourself and burnout in others. And I think what Phil Jackson did well is he identified that Rodman was close to burnout. And we talked about this in the Beast Mode episode, where burnout, you don't even realize you're in burnout. Yeah. You're sometimes the last person to realize it. So I think Phil Jackson 
identified burnout in Rodman and did the necessary step to actually allow him to recharge. The second point is around managing clever people. Now, not all of us is going to have to deal or manage a Rodman in our lifetimes, but we're always going to have to manage, we'll all be in positions where we have to manage eccentric people, whether it's people who work directly below us or people who we have in our team who are just eccentric and brilliant at the same time, which is exactly what Rodman was. And there was another quote, so many brilliant quotes from this documentary. There was another quote from the Pistons um, manager who was speaking to a junior coach who was trying to instruct Rodman, trying to get Rodman on the right page and telling how to play the game of basketball. And this guy just said, you don't put a saddle on a Mustang. You let him go. Yes. And that would be my lesson from this, which if you have a brilliant person who you've brought on to do a task, you shouldn't overmanage or micromanage them. You should trust that their brilliance is going to outshine some of their eccentric quirks. And I think that was managed exceptionally well in this episode or in, in, in this instance. And, and accepting that many people are going to dislike them. Because I've mm. seen those instances beforehand where you know you have someone brilliant, but they themselves are potential on the spectrum. And they don't realise how they rub people up the wrong way. Or yeah. they're sadistic enough to actually enjoy doing it. So there's going to be a lot of heat on you on how that person is able to just get away with their antics. Allow them to run and you educate everyone else on how to deal with them. You don't edit that individual to conform. Because editing that individual to conform dilutes their genius. They're already crazy. But their brilliance is in the fact that they're crazy. Allow them to be crazy and teach everyone else how to deal with crazy. Yeah, and I think there was almost a kindred spirit element with Phil Jackson and Rodman, probably more so than Jordan, because they were both eccentric. They were both people who were outside of the box. And I think they were both free spirits, in a sense, who didn't necessarily conform to their environments. Yeah. And for that reason, I think there wasn't a better coach for the type of player that was a Rodman. No, which is probably why Phil Jackson took him. When they disbanded yeah. in 98, uh, mm. Jackson took him to Lakers. Which is, yeah. when you make that move, oh, sometimes I, I wish certain people weren't listening to this. When you make a move, know who you're taking with you. Always have in your black book, we're grown now, black book does not have the names of concubines. That's, that's not <laughs> what we're about. The Black Book has the names of highly effective individuals who can come in to do a great job. Who do you know that you're taking with you? Agreed. I want to give a honourable mention very quickly to two other players. Uh, John Paxson, Steve Nash. Hmm. Now, some people would argue that they didn't deserve any airtime whatsoever <laughs> that these people were role players and they should be honorable mentions in the credits and the credits alone 
and why we were why, why we had to listen to them share their opinions about this experience was absolutely unnecessary but the reason why I'll give you an honorable mention is because as a basketball player you were the best in your con- in in your county to get to the NBA you were the best in your school you were the best in your college you potentially the best in your university you were the man on campus everybody respected you for being the best very few people make it to the highest levels of competition in the NBA so to get there and then to be completely dwarfed in ability <laughs> by the, those people around you must be absolutely heartbreaking so strange to realize that you are just going to be a footnote in somebody else's story and accept that must be a, a really ch- serious challenge to your ego and arguably something that Jerry Krause couldn't do. He couldn't accept being a chapter in somebody else's autobiography. Steve Nash and uh, Paxson did that beautifully. They knew who they were. They knew why they were there. Um, I was just there to get out of the way. And sometimes Michael would pass me the ball and I would do a three-point shot. That was my only job. My only job was to not get in the way and sometimes receive the ball for a three-pointer when there were four or five people guarding Mike. Humility. Nobody was ever, nobody was guarding me, so I was always open. Sometimes I shot and, so, and sometimes it went in. <laughs> now, when you hear that being said by elite players, like excessive humility, it's because they know that they are around true greatness. Yeah. And I just want to give I want to give them a shout out. Uh, Steve Nash went on to uh, manage or coach the um, Golden State Warriors, and he won championships with them. And he adopted a lot of Phil Jackson's uh, methodology in order to make that happen. Yeah. So credit to him; he's got a legacy which seems to continue to grow. And it's not, it's yeah, it's, not it's, the Chicago Bulls right now. Say again? Paxman. Uh, he stayed on with the Chicago Bulls, I believe. He coached. Yeah, he became general manager. Yeah. He actually became general manager of the, the Chicago Bulls and he became, I think, he was part of the operations team there as well. So these people actually transitioned out of um, basketball into some successful careers. And you could argue that wasn't, that wasn't the case with some of the bigger, more talented players. No. Some of the most talented players didn't actually transition out of successful basketball careers into careers afterwards. But we'll definitely touch upon that with Michael. There's a lesson there, um, not just in basketball, but in many sports. Because it's often been said that it's the average elite player or the average player who has to become a lot more introspective just to keep up. But that introspection leads them to start thinking about the game on a level that most elite players are not. There comes a point where the truly gifted player is almost an autopilot. What they are doing is just, they're not thinking about it. It's so natural. Mm. Whilst the average elite player has to study how to yes. keep up. And they end up becoming great coaches and managers in their own right. Um, as a lover of football, I think of the Sir Alex Ferguson, the Arsene Bengals, who were very average footballers. Yeah. Extremely average footballers. 
think about the Jose Mourinho's who could never make it as a footballer and but just loved the sport. There are so many instances which is a valuable, valuable lesson that if you know that you're not elite in your current industry right now, there is still a position for you if you are willing to study a greater extent than your peers. Absolutely. Is there anyone else who deserves an honourable mention? You mentioned Carmen Alexa already, so... (laughs) 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 People, please watch this documentary. It had me doing everything. Um, I was in awe at times. I was laughing at times. It's one of the greatest things I've watched for a very long time. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed the first part of our review of The Last Dance. Some of you might be wondering at this stage, how have you guys managed to do a review of The Last Dance and barely mention Michael Jordan? Well, that's because we pretty much dedicated an hour to the man himself. So I hope you enjoyed this one, but tune in next week where we delve into the legend in detail. Take care.